Well, welcome to a, a special edition of the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. On the line uh, tonight, I've got uh, Joe Fugit, Jeff Schultz, and Richard Bale. We're going to talk about the 2011 National Train Show that uh, was early in July back in Sacramento. I, like a lot of you, did not have the opportunity to attend. Uh, I've watched the videos that, for instance, Jeff has put up, uh, you know, the interviews with different manufacturers. But to me, there's a lot more to that show than than just the manufacturers and uh, what they presented to Booth. There's, you know, information, there's great tours, there's great uh, workshops. And so we just want to kind of give an overview uh, about that. So, Joe, why don't you just start us off with, you know, just what is the National Train Show? Well, it's an event that's held every year, and it actually moves around the country. It's typically on the West Coast one year, then Midwest, middle of the country the next year, and then on the East Coast the following year, and then kind of cycles back the other direction. Um, This particular year, it was in Sacramento. It's also in conjunction with the NMRA convention, although the National Train Show and the convention are actually two separate organizations. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, the train show typically starts on Friday and is open first to the convention goers in the morning. So you kind of have the floor to yourself if you're a convention goer. So that's a great time for people that attend the convention to go and and, uh, talk to the vendors and see the new stuff and to not be mobbed, so to speak, by the general public. But then in the afternoon on Friday, the show opens to the public, and then the show typically runs... Also, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Generally, what the train show organization likes to do is to advertise a lot on billboards, television, radio, to give the general public a good idea that this show's coming and to, you know, build interest and to get a good attendance to the show. The last I heard for Sacramento was the attendance was just shy of 20,000, which is pretty good attendance for a national train show. Okay. Uh, of course, that's a beautiful area, the the uh, country to go to. Do you think that was tempered somewhat by the economy? or That's a good question. I don't know if uh, Richard or Jeff have any comments there. Um, maybe a little bit uh, is my guess. But overall, the show was pretty well attended, I thought. I, I think that uh, 20,000 is about right for a West Coast show. Some of the East Coast shows, are particularly in the Northeast, tend to draw um, somewhat larger crowds, uh, probably because the population is uh, more dense and also because there seems to be more uh, greater variety of railroads historically in those areas, and I think there's maybe a, a bit stronger interest. But uh, 19,800 is a pretty good figure for for the West Coast. Uh, um, I'd like to comment that there are there's kind of three elements to the uh, National Train Show. Okay. Um, and it's um, it's presented, of course, primarily to promote model railroading in general, and specifically to uh, the public. Um, one of the sections, and probably the dominant section of the show, um, they have display operating uh, display of operating layouts, and there's usually a really nice wide variety of scales and types. Some of them are very sophisticated; others cater to the kids, uh, and that's a very exciting and kind of a gleeful section of the of the floor. I would say that that often takes up almost half of the floor 
very attractive to the public and, uh, and a very exciting section. And then there's also a second section, which um, is primarily industrial industry manufacturers, hobby model railroad hobby manufacturers, publishers, organizations. And uh, they have booths and they have an opportunity of showing their products and talking with customers. And, and then the third section is uh, primarily taken up by dealers who are actually selling products. And that ranges uh, all the way from the like the tool man out of Fort Worth, Texas, who has an amazing array of really nifty tools for modelers. And um, so that's kind of a, it's kind of a three-part show from, from that standpoint. Okay. The, uh, speaking of that, all right, so we've got this broad appeal. Let me, uh, before we move on, did any of you guys go to any of the uh, layout tours that were held, I guess, a little bit before the show actually started? Those are actually part of the uh, convention itself. Okay. Joe, at least, went on the LD SIG tour, which is a self-guided one. I took one of the best tours called the Rockman Rocket, which was a approximately six-hour tour on Wednesday afternoon with six different layouts. Okay. Jeff, you, you're coming in. At first, you were real clear and stuff, and now it's like you're down in a can. Okay, well, I can go in and shift the pitch and amplify it a little bit. So, Jeff, what was your, you went on the six-hour tour. What was your impression of the, the you know, enjoyment of the, the layouts? Were they well done? Did you enjoy them? There was a, a wide variety. Um, the first layout we hit was an extremely well done ON3 or ON30 layout. Um, kind of a logging, mountainous theme, shades and Climax is wandering around the layout. Fully detailed, fully scenic. Um, and the last one we went to was essentially several parallel tracks with the passenger. Uh, I'm thinking of the uh, the shelter covers that go between the tracks where the passengers wait, going down their lengths um, because that guy was in the still fairly early stages of replicating a complete passenger terminal that was in San Francisco. Um, and he was doing it effectively without much compression. Anyway, so we had literally that variety um, from this extremely well done ON30 layout to one that was essentially a 15 by 5 foot tabletop. Only one layout was looked like it was really operating, and that was uh, Dave Houston, that's his name, the Rockland sub. So, um, Paul, there's actually two types of tours, layout tours, that are done at the conventions. One is a bus tour, which I believe is what Jeff went on, yes. and the other kind is a car tour. And the nice thing about a car tour is it's self-guided, and you can kind of pick and choose Usually the layouts have a schedule in which they're open, so you do have to to kind of plan your route based on what layouts are open when. But um, you know you can you can control what layouts you go to and what layouts you skip when you do a car tour. When you do a bus tour, typically you know, and I've been on the other side where I've been on a convention committee and put together the layout tours. Typically, a bus tour is is designed based on a locale. And the goal is to 
for the bus tour is to get at least one okay. or two layouts on the tour that are, uh, you know, very high quality layouts so that people feel like the tour was worthwhile. And then you'll fill in the tour with other layouts that maybe aren't as scenic far enough along or, you know, the guys just laying track or whatever. Uh, but they, they do happen to be in the, the same general area. So it works for the bus tour. So what that means is when you own a bus tour, generally the, the level of layouts that you see will be much more inconsistent. So you just have to get used to that knowing that you'll see some okay. layouts that you may even go, why is this layout on the tour? <laughs> and, and other layouts that yes. are really, really nice. One of the yeah, things okay. I like about the LD SIG car tour, which is typically on Wednesday, and that's the tour that I went on, every layout is intended to be a layout that's, that teaches something very good about layout design. And so they gen generally are the more innovative layouts in the area. And so that's why I like the SIG tour, because usually every stop is a high-quality layout. There were something like 18 layouts on the SIG tour, and we got to eight of them, and it took us all day. Okay. So that's, that's amazing. Uh, now, the show, how big of a building is this? Oh, I would guess that hall is about 125,000 square feet. Uh, I built I don't think we used all of it, but I, I'm sure we were up to 80 or 90,000 square feet. Very roomy, and that allows for, for comfortable aisle space and crowds that you know, seem to surge from one spot to another. Uh, it was very well laid out, and, and certainly was plenty of room. Uh, nice big high ceiling, so it was, a, it was a big convention hall. Very effective. In your guys' opinion, was it easy to get to and from? From like the hotels, it was right well, across the street from the Sheraton Grand Sheraton, which was the, one of the convention hotels, and I believe it was just a couple of blocks from the other convention hotels. So it was very easy I, to get to. Go ahead. I Rick. drove to it, uh, which was a little bit different. Um, more like the general public, I suppose. Um, it's located right downtown, right in the capital city, and parking is at a premium. Uh, and it's expensive. So on, uh, I didn't have a problem on Sunday, but on Friday and Saturday, I had to look around for a reasonably priced, uh, parking lot. And, um, it's, a, it's about $10 a day. And, uh, the parking lots that are right adjacent to the convention center were almost twice that. So, um, it's a little, a little pricey from the parking standpoint, but I think people in the big city are probably used to that. Yeah, and honestly, twenty bucks for eight to ten hours of parking right downtown—that's a bargain in Phoenix. Well, this is a—it's a family event, so I'm sure that a lot of the folks are watching their, you know, watching their pennies and looking around for for the least expensive place to uh, park. Just now that uh, the show's been over and so forth, Joe's explained to us what it, uh, what the show was all about. Uh, just overview because i've got some specific questions but overview impression of the show either as a standalone or you know you can put it in a contrast 
to uh, others you've attended. Any opinions there? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. Um, you know, I've, I've been going to these shows off and on for 20 years. Um, and particularly been attending since we started Model Railroad Hobbyists back in 2008, uh, when we started ramping up to publish in January of 2009. I've been going to every show. And, um, this show seemed a little light to me on the manufacturers. I don't know, maybe Richard could comment on that too. Yes, I have some comments, but I'm not sure you want to hear them. I, I felt there was, um, I was a little bit disappointed in, in, uh, some of the manufacturers I thought would be there who were not there. And one, one small segment, uh, that caught my eye, uh, even though this was the the main event was the the NMRA convention, the uh, the S scale crowd um, they held their national convention at the same time, which was a very good idea. Um, despite that, there were very few S scale manufacturers displaying on the on the floor, uh, which I thought was a bit of a disappointment. Um, I think there were a total of, of three manufacturers who focus on S scale who had exhibit halls. And yet typically there's, uh, in the neighborhood of 25 manufacturers who were in that, in that category. Um, there were some, there were some relatively large names. I think, uh, you asked earlier, Paul, about the, the economy. That may have affected some of the, Manufacturers who decided not to make the trip all the way to the West Coast. Um, there are several in the Midwest and on the East Coast who I thought would be there and usually are, but uh, they were not. Okay, so I'm going to presume that people like big distributors like Horizon, Walters, uh, of course they're there. I know Xactra was there. Do you have or uh, did we see people like uh, Intermountain and uh, those uh, level of manufacturers? Were oh, they yes. there? All, all, most of the large ones were there. Okay. Um, a great many of what I would categorize as the mid-sized manufacturers. Uh, some of the, I don't want to dwell on people who were missing, uh, but there were some who, uh, who would be in the mid-category. I don't believe there were any. Uh, that we would call the big major manufacturers who were not there. They were, they were well represented. Some of them had very, very sizable booths, walk-in booths, major displays of all of their product. Bachman even included some of their seasonal items, which would be coming up this fall, some of their train sets. So the, the big guys in the industry were well represented. Uh, I was a little disappointed in, in that in some of those large booths, the personnel on hand didn't always uh, know their product all that well. I, I think one of the things that happens is that the big manufacturers attend so many shows throughout the year, regional shows, that they tend to become a little bit routine. And I don't think they're maybe quite as excited about the event as the medium and the smaller and the, and the mom-and-pop manufacturers are. Okay. Or if they... 
send the same people to show after show. Sometimes I guess you got to give them a break and let them spend a weekend home with the family. And so maybe the second team comes in that's not quite as versed on the product. Yeah, I think that probably happens. Okay. Well, then that's, you know, we're human. They're human. Uh, now, not a step back, but what was a week's worth of tickets? What was the admission price to the show? Hmm. Crickets. The public Crickets. price? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you never pay it, so I'm not sure any of us Yeah, that's a, that's a trick question. I, uh, <laughs> well, if, I don't if, know the answer to that. Well, if none Paul of, went, paid. if Paul went, what would he, what would I have paid? Well, you would have come in as model railroad hobbyist, wouldn't you? Yeah, but if I went just as Paul Gillette, what would I have paid? I don't know. Let me pull, I'll pull it, move on to another subject and I'll come okay. up with an Okay, quick Google action going on here. Yes, uh, okay, I got it. I got it up here. Admission prices for adults were $12. Discounted adult in 65 and older was 11 Two days adult was $22. And age 6 to 12 was $6, under that was free. Okay. See, I had heard a number in one of the earlier podcasts where it was like a $150 package. Oh, well, you're talking about the convention, though. See, remember the train train show? show Different from the convention. Okay. The train show and the convention are two different organizations. Um, The, However, attendance, a, a, a registration for the convention includes... Free attendance to the train show. Okay. Part of the package. But yes, the um, convention price was around $100 and some change. Okay. It was one of the least expensive conventions as convention fees go in the past several years. Yes. I'm about about to sign up for Grand Rapids and it's already $150. Okay. I, I think. I think though that when you when you look at that price for the, for the general public, you have a family, you know, mom and dad and two kids, plus parking plus uh, lunch, that adds up pretty fast. And uh, I I do think that the show tends to be priced a little on the high side. Well, okay. but you compare public. it to to what any family will do these days for entertainment, you know. For example, take the family to a movie. You're going to pay about the same amount. Well, I don't want to argue with you, but I I think the purpose of the show is to promote the hobby. So I'm not sure you can compare it with just straight family entertainment. But any in any case, um, it is a good show, and the families who went, I'm sure, had a wonderful time. Yes. Okay. Well, I was... You know, I wasn't going to go ask my wife for an increase on my allowance to go, so I will uh, plan ahead uh, next year. You say it's Grand Rapids, Jeff? Yes, sir. Used to live not too far from that. Grand Rapids is a beautiful town there on Lake Michigan. All right. Now, so we talked about some of the manufacturers that weren't there and so forth. Uh what about the mood as you talk to him? I mean, as I look at, you know, Jeff's interviews with the different companies, I mean, that portrays, you know, a company line. But is the the mood just the people? Are they, you know, the manufacturers, the suppliers, stuff? are they upbeat? 
about the hobby? Uh, do some of them have reservations without naming names? But what do you think? I think in general the manufacturers are quite optimistic, and I, and I don't know that any of them have really been hit terribly hard. Um, you know, if it, if someone loses their job, heaven forbid, but if you lose your job and you have free time on your hands, that could be good for the hobby industry. Um, I know that sounds a little bit uh, evil there, but um, in general, the uh, people in the hobby uh, that I talk to on an ongoing basis, they're they're quite optimistic, and several several of them tell me that they uh, are in the midst of the best year that they've ever had. So I, I think business is fairly good. There are there are complaints by consumers that prices are too high, and the manufacturers don't want to charge that those high prices, but they really don't have any other choice as, uh, as costs are going up. But overall, I would say business is good at the manufacturing level. I can't really speak that well at the retail, the traditional brick-and-mortar hobby store. That may be a whole different issue there. But in general, I think people are, are feeling pretty good about the, the business, the level of business. Okay. And in their favor, you've got most of us baby boomers who are either retired or one one or two steps away from it. And so, you know, we as you mentioned, we've got more and more time to uh, work on a model railroad and, and just buy new cars for the sake of buying them. You know, exactly. I'm guilty of that. I think I we like all to, are. <laughs> <laughs> we all have a shelf or a cupboard full of stuff that hasn't been built yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'd right. like to comment on some of the... Um, some of the more exciting things I saw, I, I always try to find out the innovative things that are being presented at a show, which may affect the hobby or even change the direction of the hobby. And um, I'd like to throw out just four things that I saw that I thought were pretty neat, and maybe the other guys have can make some comments. Oh, yeah, please um, do. Please do. First of all, I was very – we've always had trouble – replicating stainless steel on a uh, passenger car. And I thought the finish on the Rapido Canadien car was terrific. I think they've really hit the nail on the head. I don't know how they've done it, but it really does look like uh, prototype stainless steel. Secondly, uh, and Jeff hit on this when he was interviewing uh, over at the Scenic Express booth, uh, applying static grass is a, is a really tried and true technique for scenery, but it's coupled with kind of an expensive electronic applicator. And uh, Scenic Express has introduced a new grass that doesn't require an applicator. So I think that maybe is a new direction for scenery. Um, I'm sure that uh, Joe's got some things to add to the new RF control system that Neil Stanton presented at the uh, Northwest Short Lines booth, which may change the direction of DCC over the next several years. And then finally, um, it was sort of a quiet thing, but in the in the Bowser booth, George Huckabee was demonstrating a PCC trolley car. And in that trolley car was a special um, system that I believe had been de had been developed in conjunction with uh, soundtracks. And that little PCC car 
you could hear the trolley gong uh, just before the the uh, trolley uh, started moving. You could hear the pneumatic doors open and close. You could hear the compressor sounds. The motor generator uh, fired up. You could hear the sound of the motors as the as the trolley started moving. And then as it as it came to a stop, just before, as it was coming to a stop, the brake lights went on at the back of the trolley. So it just makes me wonder, you know, what's in the future for passenger equipment, for, uh, you know, the kinds of sounds we might be hearing in a uh, in a freight train uh, at a station stop or at a crossing, all kinds of exciting things in the future. Well, that's neat. Joe, what uh, can you talk about that RFF uh, advance that uh, Richard mentioned? Yeah, so it was the Northwest Short Line booth. There's a Stanton drive, which is effectively a power drive where the motor is completely in the truck. So there's there's no gear tower. There's no need to have a motor inside the hood or uh, inside the the boiler or whatever what what you're doing. Uh, so anyway, the power is completely self-contained in the truck. Um, and what they've done is they've now taken this to the next logical level since that creates a lot of free space under the hood inside your uh, powered unit. They've now added battery power. Oh. So, uh, and, and they've included it with a wireless DCC throttle. So you now have wireless battery powered DCC. And Holy it looks. Holy cow looks pretty practical. It's one of the most practical versions of battery-powered I've seen. There, I've seen over the last couple of years some experiments done with it, but it didn't ever really strike me as being something that you looked at and went, wow, this, this is, I can just see how this would work. Um, they recommend that you power only the locations on the layout where a locomotive would typically be sitting and not moving. And so that means all the complex track work uh, that you, where you have your wiring headaches and short possibilities, uh, you can leave all of that as dead track. So I think this is uh, a pretty interesting development. And uh, with the wireless DCC throttle coupled with the battery power, that means you can put all this inside. It'll fit inside a diesel hood, for example you use the Stanton power trucks um, and then with your DCC throttle you can control the locomotive you can use any DCC decoder you want but it's all being powered from battery now that's uh, you know like the G gauge The there's a five acre layout not too far from me and the guy has these USA uh, trains big boys and he has big battery packs in the tenders and the, the first couple of cars. It's all battery powered. That is so exciting. Now, this was an HO gauge? HO gauge. And they said uh, the charge is uh, good for about three hours, which is about what you need for an op session. Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting is they're using 3-volt. This particular example was a 3-volt battery with a step-up uh, amplifier board to amplify it to 12 volts. By using a 3-volt feed, the battery's smaller, 
and uh, so then you, you know it's it's easier to fit inside the hood and so anyway a lot of very interesting technology in wow. this design and i think we're right on the cusp of seeing this whole battery powered uh ho scale battery powered uh opportunity or approach uh is really going to take off i think are those uh, just curiosity but is that like a lithium ion pack or what was the technology of the battery yeah i believe it is a lithium okay. lithium battery and they're rechargeable or are you just are you using throwaways uh it's rechargeable and so uh you know it recharges from track power so wow. what you do is you just power the like the garden tracks in your yard or power a passing siding and then whenever you park the locomotive there then you know at the end of a run then it'll just be charging while it's sitting there that is so cool uh how was it you know because i again and some of the people i'd spoken with there was a concern about uh internet access and video rights and everything at the show did anything come of that or was it pretty accessible well for the video part we actually ended up having a conversation with the facility manager and we explained to them that the reason we were shooting video was um, you know we consider ourselves in a venue like this to be more or less the media right because we will take and shoot the video and post it on the internet for free and it's just as a service to the hobby really and uh, we explained that to the facility owners because they do have a policy that if you're going to use their facilities and shoot video and then turn around and sell the video they do want you to pay a fee so uh, but once we explained to them what we were doing and that it was all free and it was just uh, news reporting basically on the event uh, they said fine you can go and shoot all the video you want it's not a problem Yeah, because some of the restrictions that I had heard being bandied about, and I thought, boy, that's just really, I mean, what a crimp in your style for like MRH or anybody else out there that, you know, is there to report the events of the uh, of the show and the convention. Yeah, I'm not sure how much uh, that could really be enforced. Well, as there's obviously enforcing it for... Uh, commercial ventures or someone who is doing it in a big way. But, you know, the other thing these days, cell phones and, and, uh, you know, other, other types of devices, even still cameras have video mode. It's, it's possible for people to shoot a video clip of anything at one of these events, a short clip. And, you know, 10 minutes later, it's on YouTube. Okay, we're going to break this into a two-part show because we had a lot to talk about. And uh, just to make it easier to do it in smaller bites, look for us uh, on iTunes for 2011 Train Show Review Part 2. Thanks for listening.